Hello to all of you. It's good to be together in person and, uh, and to all of you on Zoom. I just want you to know that we, we miss you. We would love for you to come and be with us in person. Uh, it is good to be together. So if all of you on Zoom, I just want you to know that we, we miss you dearly. We'd love for you to be here. It's safe to be here. It's good to be here. Uh, we're giving out door prizes. I think next week we're canceling student debt, so it should be pretty, pretty fun. So amen. Um, so uh, we, uh, my name is Jordan. I'm one of the folks that serves on the preaching team here at Missio Day Church. And we are pressing pause on our study of the book of Acts, which we have been studying together as a church since September. And the reason for that is, as it's been mentioned, today is Palm Sunday, which marks the beginning of what is called Holy Week in the church calendar. And it's a week that the church has remembered for thousands of years as a kind of way to journey through the last week of Jesus's life. Now, the last few times I've preached, I've let you all in on a few Jordan fun facts, which I know were all life-altering experiences for you. So I have another one for you, so everybody buckle up, all right? Another fun fact about me is that my favorite movie of all time is Lawrence of Arabia, okay? I know it's no Borat or Nacho Libre, but it's pretty good, okay? Uh, It's a film that takes place during World War I, and it follows a British soldier named T.E. Lawrence, who united multiple feuding Arabic tribes into one single army to fight against the Ottoman Turks. And there are so many things that make Lawrence a cinematic masterpiece. But one of the most memorable, what's most memorable to me are the climactic scenes in the film that slowly build towards this kind of masterful uh, crescendo. You have long shots in the desert with a horse riding forward. Uh, you've got um, the epic music that starts to come in. The drum parts and the score are incredible. And they zoom in on all uh, on the characters to kind of see their expressions uh, in, in key situations. And when I read the text that we look at this morning and I picture it in my mind, I think of those epically constructed scenes from Lawrence. And the reason is partly because the overarching movement of our text, and indeed Palm Sunday as a whole, is this sense that the, the story of God begins to accelerate forward towards its ultimate, ultimate climax and crescendo. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. Uh, we're going to look at verses 29 through 46. So Luke 19, 29 through 46. So hear the word of the Lord. When he, meaning Jesus, had come near Bethpage in Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as as he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was now approaching the path from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all deeds of power that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. 
As he came near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, If you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. Indeed, the day will come upon you when your enemies will set your up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave... And they, and they will not leave you within one stone upon another, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. Then he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling things there. And he said, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of, of robbers. And this is the word of the Lord. Uh, so there are three sections or movement in this text. Number one, the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Number two, Jesus looking over the city of Jerusalem. And number three, Jesus cleansing the temple. Now, I'm actually going to start with the third section uh, and then go to the first and second. So when Jesus cleansed the temple. So throughout God's story, Israel was the primary instrument that Yahweh chose to move and operate in the world. There were a variety of practices and actions and symbols that the Jewish people utilized to interact and relate with Yahweh. But there were two primary ways that they viewed as kind of intermediaries or stand-ins for God's presence on earth. One was the temple and the other was the Torah. And throughout his ministry, Jesus, time and again, exercised authority and judgment over both the temple and the Torah. Furthermore, his actions demonstrated that he viewed himself as the new stand-in for God's people. He was the new temple and Torah, not made of stones or papyrus scrolls, but flesh and blood. The reason that this is significant is because of the Jewish messianic hope. Jews understood the Messiah to be an anointed figure who would unite all of God's people, liberate them, and restore the temple. And Jesus acted and spoke as if he was, in some sense, called to do and be what the temple was and did. For example, he offered forgiveness with no prior condition of temple worship or sacrifice. He takes the idea of temple and Torah and he begins to reshape them, to reconstruct them around his very person. As he fulfilled the messianic hope, he was also remaking and redefining the messianic hope to go much further and indeed much deeper than was originally thought. So the scene that takes place in the temple is yet again another messianic sequence of events that places Jesus right at the center. So I start with that because having, without having this messianic background, we will miss much of the powerful actions um, and symbols at the beginning of the text. So as Jesus enters J- Jerusalem, the, the account of this entry into the city is absolutely littered with royal overtones and symbols. God was becoming king. This is now the beginning of the Messiah assuming his rightful place as king. The king will soon reign and all will be well. Listen to N.T. Wright's description of this passage. He says, this was to be the climax of his story, of his public career, of his vocation. He knew well enough what lay ahead and had set his face to go and meet it head on. He couldn't stop announcing the kingdom, but that announcement could only come true if he now embodied in himself the things he'd been talking about. 
the living God was at work to heal and save. And the forces of evil and death were massed to oppose him. Just like Pharaoh and the armies of Egypt trying to prevent the Israelites from leaving. But this was to be the moment of God's new exodus. God's great Passover. And nothing could stop Jesus going ahead to celebrate it. The time had come for the Messiah to assume his rightful place. And the king would soon reign. But the rightful place and reign of this Messiah was a far cry from what was expected. Jesus was indeed liberating his people, but he was freeing them from something that they didn't even know they needed to be free from. And isn't that, isn't that the, the story and the picture of the spiritual journey? We want God to free us from one thing, and the Lord says, I'm actually going to free you from what you don't even realize you need to be free from. And that freedom is much greater than the one that you are asking for. As they entered Jerusalem, the disciples were more than likely had a vision of what Jesus was going to do that was similar to what I had shared previously, namely that he would overthrow and defeat the Romans, unite God's people, rebuild the temple, and take his rightful place as king and messiah. They were hoping and expecting that Jesus was going to take on and defeat the Romans. But in fact, Jesus was actually going to take on and defeat the dark powers that stood behind Rome, namely sin and death. They thought that their biggest problem, what ailed them the most as a people, was the oppression from the Romans. But the reality is that, they were in, uh, that, that what enslaved them was not just the Roman Empire, but the forces of s- sin and death that stood behind Rome, that stood behind them and as well as it stood behind the entire human race. History has seen its fair share of brutal and oppressive dictators, just like the Romans. And make no mistake, the heart of God, as expressed in Jesus, is to liberate the oppressed but it's also to liberate the oppressor. And the dark powers of sin and death that stand behind both the oppressed and the oppressor. That's the beautiful messiness of the grace of God in the Messiah, Jesus. There is no doubt that Jesus offers liberation, but it's not just liberation from what we think we need to be free from. It is but it's also a liberation that goes far beyond and much deeper than we could ever imagine. And isn't that how Jesus always operates? He does deal with the things on the surface, but he doesn't stop there. He always goes to the deepest core of the human person and the deepest need for all of creation because his love for his people and the good creation is too great and too powerful. So then you have Jesus overlooking Jerusalem. Now, as you know, my wife Emily started the weekly prayer time on Sunday mornings because she's much more spiritual than I am. Um, but uh, we meet at 9.30 up on the hill. We've got mimosas up there. It's unbelievable, okay? Uh, but we gather up on the hill to pray over the city. And we have this beautiful view overlooking the Portland downtown skyline. Now, I won't speak for everyone else who has come to pray, but I know for me, as I look over the city skyline and pray, There's this dual emotion in me of hope on the one hand, but also a bit of sadness on the other. Sadness because I know there are so many people in the city that I'm looking out on who are hurting, broken, 
without hope. And they don't know the good news that King Jesus has rescued them. I think that feeling I had overlooking our city is but a small smidgen of the great sadness Jesus had overlooking Jerusalem. What a beautiful and powerful thing. Jesus was not filled with rage or anger as he was in the temple. He weeps. Just as he did outside the tomb of his dear friend, Lazarus. There's this sense by his actions overlooking Jerusalem that Jesus is saying, you're missing it. You are missing Yahweh in the flesh. Yahweh is here with you and you are missing it. And you don't even know what you need to be rescued from. And Lord, help us if we miss it too. So how can we not miss it? How does it well, what does this text have to say to us on Palm Sunday 2021? Here's what I'd like for us to consider. The downward movement of Jesus is what set us free. And as a result of that movement, we are called and enabled to embody it in the world. I'm going to say that again because it's so good. The downward movement of Jesus is what set us free. And as a result of that movement, we are called and enabled to embody it in the world. This downward movement began with and was initiated by the triune God. The Trinity itself is, in essence, a continual downward movement of mutual submission of Father, Son, and Spirit. This triune God moved downward to become flesh and blood in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus continued this downward movement throughout his ministry. It wasn't just that God moved downward in Jesus and dwelt among us, but who he chose to dwell with represents a continual downward movement. His willing downward movement placed him with the downward of his day. Touching the untouchable, seeing the invisible, loving the unlovable, including the excluded, inviting the disinvited, forgiving the unforgivable, remembering the forgotten, listening to the silenced, healing the sick, and restoring the broken. Even the 12 men that he handpicked The ones he chose to be the disciples represent a downward movement. Who in the world would ever pick these 12 guys? What rabbi would ever choose these men? The one who continues to choose the downward movement. Jesus himself talked about this downward movement. If you want to save your life, you must lose it. If you want to be first, you must be last. If you want to follow me, you must deny yourself. Greater love has no other than this, that you lay your life down. As he did with everything that he proclaimed, Jesus didn't just say it, he lived it. He embodied this downward movement, even to the point of moving downward to his knees to wash the filthy feet of his disciples and all the way to a wooden cross and a crown of thorns. This is what the Apostle Paul is attempting to describe in Philippians 2, which we just read aloud this morning as a community. He did not consider equality with God something to be exploited, but he kenosis, that's the Greek word, kenosis, he emptied himself. There's a Lent devotional that I've been using for the last four years. I would commend it to you. It's called Wondrous Encounters by Richard Rohr. And for Palm Sunday today, he, he comments on Philippians 2. He says, It brilliantly connects the two mysteries as one movement, down, down, 
down into the enfleshment of creation and then into humanity's depths and sadness and final identification with those at the very bottom on the cross. In Jesus, God has chosen to descend. Friends, hope is possible right now, today, because of the king's downward movement to take on hopelessness. The light of new morning is possible because of the king's downward movement to take on the darkness of evening. A burden and yoke that is light is possible because of the downward movement to bear the full burden and yoke that was destroying all of creation. Freedom and liberation is possible today because of the king's downward movement to take on the full weight and the full measure of all that was enslaving his people. This downward movement freed us. But it also calls us and enables us to embody this movement in the world. This good news is not just meant for us to receive, but for us to model, embody, and live outward in the world of others. We are, we are called to embody this downward movement by giving our lives away. The only way up is down. The only way to life is death. Resurrection cannot happen without something first dying. As Jesus went up to Golgotha, he was simultaneously moving downward to take on the full weight of sin and death. This is what theologians call uh, the cruciform life or, or cruciform living, that we die to ourselves by sacrificially giving our lives away, and then we rise to discover freedom and life in the most unexpected and deeply powerful ways. Listen to what Richard Rohr says at the end of his book, Falling Upward. The genius of the gospel was that it included the problem inside the solution. The falling became the standing. The stumbling became the finding. The dying became the rising. The, sh- the raft became the shore. W- one of the most effective discipleship programs that has transformed lives, millions of lives throughout the world, is the 12-step program. Uh, This program is used by AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, or Narcotics Anonymous, uh, and it's for people who are in recovery. And the 12th step, the final step of the program, is to give yourself away in service. A person who is in recovery, who has gone through the program, has now, who has now experienced sobriety, health, and wholeness, they are then called to give their life away in service. This takes shape in a lot of different ways, but one of the most important ways is the person who is now experiencing sobriety must now give themselves to someone who is just beginning the program to walk them through and show them what I would call the downward movement. On the 12-step program's website, here's what they say about the, 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 this last step, the 12th step of the, of the program. They say, if nobody was doing any 12-step work, the program would simply cease to exist. Without the service work of those who came before, no members would be here now. That's powerful. The process of recovery 
is a downward movement. And those who experience it realize that that movement is not just meant for them, but it's meant to go out from them to others. Just as the early followers of Jesus knew that the downward movement they saw and experienced in Jesus was not just meant for them, but meant to go outward from them to the world. So our youngest, Abigail, is really getting into basketball. She loves to play basketball. She's eight years old and can shoot on a 10-foot rim. No big deal. Whatever. Um, but uh, we were playing hoops earlier this week, and we're in the gym, and we're dribbling, we're shooting. And she's been missing a few shots in a row, and she's getting really frustrated. She's like, Daddy, I want my shot to go higher. How come it can't go higher? And I said, well, Abigail, you know, I noticed that when you were shooting, your, your legs are pretty straight. You've got to go down. You've got to get lower. And she said, that makes no sense. Why do I have to go down to go higher? And I'm like, just try it. So sure enough, she starts dribbling. She gets lower, and then she explodes up, and she hits her next shot. Abigail was experiencing the reality that the way up is down. And she didn't learn that through watching a video or reading a book or looking at a picture, but only through experiencing it. This downward movement can only be fully grasped through practicing it, through experience, through the practice of sacrificially giving your life away. Now, one might ask, what's, what, what's the why behind this? Why, like, why should I give my uh, life away? What's sort of the why? I've got three thoughts on it. One is not very compelling. The second is true. But the third, I think, is something you may have not thought about that's really compelling. Number one. The reason that you would want to give your life away is that you feel guilty right now that you're not doing so. So you want to do it. <laughs> and maybe some of you in this room feel guilty right now that you're not doing it, so you want to do it. And that will get you started. But after a while, it'll just sort of fizzle out. The second why would be that Jesus spoke about this, lived this, and then told us to do the same. And that's true. But here's the third why that I'd love for you to consider. What if this is what you were made for? What if there's something built into your wiring, something woven into the very fabric of your being that is created to give your life away, to die to yourself? Friends, our lives are not our own. They belong to the king. He has entrusted us with them. We have been given these bodies, our own unique gifts, this place in history and the context we are in. Our lives were made to be given away because they don't belong to us in the first place. This is foundational to what it means to follow Jesus. Jesus doesn't say anyone who wants to follow me must deny themselves unless you don't really feel gifted, gifted in that way. This is not a spiritual gift set conversation. It's not a matter of if you should give your life away, but how, when, and to whom are you giving your life away? So how might we embody this movement with, the, with those the Lord has placed in our path, wherever we find ourselves? Well, I was tempted to give you a, a long laundry list of examples of what this could look like, including mentioning some of you in our church who are great examples of giving our lives away. But I decided not to do that. 
Because I, I, I want to trust the Holy Spirit to reveal how you might give your life away to others because you are an expert on your own life. You know uh, your world and context better than I do. So I'm not going to do that, but I do want to give you two encouragements when it comes to how you might give your life away. Here's the first one. Don't give in to the temptation of wanting to give your life away in the biggest and grandest way possible. Because it typically leads to nothing happening. (laughs) Don't fall into the temptation of getting so excited. I'm going to start this organization to reach the poor and I'm going to give my life away to it. Let's go. Don't fall into the temptation of wanting to give your life away in the biggest way possible. Here's the second encouragement. Start with one small step. What's one way to give your life away in your home? What's one way to give your life away at your work, in your neighborhood, and then move outward from there? Start with that one small thing. And I think Jesus said something about things that are small, yeast, mustard seed, that grow into something much larger larger and bigger. So those would be my encouragements to you, that you would start with the one small way to give your life away. Because the life that we've been given is not ours. And that should be a freeing thing. But we have been entrusted to, we have been entrusted to be good stewards of the life that we've been given. And part of that good stewardship is that we might lay it down for those around us. Um, as I've preached a few times, I've, sometimes I've given us um, a, a prayer for the week. And I wanted to give us a, a weekly prayer um, for Holy Week. And I love that I'm on the screen in case you can't see me in the back. I know it's far away. Um, so uh, I, I, I have it on a slide that I'd like to um, put up there if we could. And we can read this prayer together. And, um, what, I, uh, and what, what we'll try and do is um, uh, I'm going to ask our uh, great church administrator, Liz, if she could put this prayer on the uh, realm. Uh, or if you want to take a picture of it on your phone and just have it this week as an encouragement to you. But, but here's my prayer for this week for us that I would love us to pray as we journey through Holy Week. Lord Jesus, as I journey with you through this Holy Week, Reveal to me the things in my life that need to die so that resurrection might take root. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, show me how to embody the downward movement that leads to life with those that you place in my path. Jesus, you and you alone are Lord, Messiah, and King. Blessed be the name of King Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, you are the good king who did not ride into town with pomp and circumstance and gold crowns and um, carriages, Lord, but you rode in on a donkey, on a colt. And Lord, we are grateful that you are the good king that laid down the great power that you had so that you might free your people. Thank you for being the king that modeled the downward movement. We, your world is in dire need now of people to live this downward movement. And may it start with Missio Day Church here in Portland, Maine. May we be people 
who willingly give our lives away because they are not our own. You have given us so much and to much that's been given, much is expected. And so I pray that this week you might reveal to us the things in us that need to die and the ways that we can give our life away for the sake of others so that new life might be birthed because Jesus Christ is life. So this Holy Week, Lord, would you speak to us? Would you teach us as we journey with you this week to the final week of your life, of you, of God's story, moving towards its climax of rescuing all of creation from sin and death? May your kingdom come and your will be done. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.